Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. 1 Samuel chapter 26, page 294 in the Pew Bible. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. When David rose and came to my place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, Saul was laying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. And David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Who will come down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to this earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, for his day will come to die, or he will go down into the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill, with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Nair, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord your king? For one of your people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the Lord's anointed. And now where the king's spear is, and the jar of water was at his head, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. Then he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let the lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life is precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and I have made a great mistake. David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of young, your young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and for his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so my life is 
So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. 1 Samuel chapter 26, we're in the middle of a walking through this book. We're actually going to be walking through 1 and 2 Samuel. There's a need for a king in Israel. When we're studying the Bible, one of the things we, hermeneutical principle, if you will, you can call it that, is we have to study the Bible in context, which means we need, we need to know what comes before it and what comes after it. And we need to interpret the, the Scripture in light of that. But sometimes there are similar passages in proximity to another. And they're, they're so much alike. And it may be that the similarities and or differences in these incidences, they hold the key to understanding the meaning of the text. And I think that's probably true. Uh, oftentimes we see that in the book of Genesis. You remember the story of Joseph selling, uh, his brother selling him into slavery in Egypt. They do that because they're jealous of him because he's the favorite son of Jacob. They don't care that the selling of Joseph into slavery is going to break their father's heart, and it does. When Joseph eventually becomes prince of Egypt, second in command of Pharaoh, his brothers, they have to come to Egypt to buy grain because of the famine. They buy it from Joseph, and they don't recognize him as their brother, but Joseph creates a situation in which these brothers must bring their younger brother, Benjamin, with them if they're to return and buy more grain. So Joseph sets them up in which Benjamin is made to look guilty of stealing from Joseph. Joseph gives his brothers an opportunity to betray Benjamin and leave him as a slave in Egypt and return safely to their father. And why would he set them up to do that? Because that is exactly what they did to him. He gives them an opportunity to relive their betrayal of him 20 years earlier. So what is significant about this similar situation in Egypt is the difference in the way the brothers, especially Judah, responds. Judah has compassion towards their father. This is going to kill my daddy, what he says. And they have concern for Benjamin. And what that does is shows Joseph that they truly have repented of their sin against him. The situation is very similar to the betrayal of Joseph by design so that brothers, their repentance will be evident by how they acted. Well, our text today, it records an incident in the life of David that's very similar to that of chapter 24, the incident that happened in the cave of Engedi. David was encouraged in that cave to take Saul's life. If you remember, Saul comes into the the cave to relieve himself, and unbeknownst to him, David and his fighting men are in the back of the cave hiding. And so David does not take Saul's life, but only cuts off a piece of his robe. David could have killed the man trying to take his life, but yet he was merciful to Saul. And if you remember, the next event is the story of Nabal. Nabal insults David and 
even though David and his men protect Nabal, Nabal benefits greatly from David and his men as they protected his shepherds and his sheep. Nabal returns evil for good, just like Saul did. Instead of being merciful like David had been to Saul in this incident, David took 400 of his men and he were all, they went off to kill Nabal and not only Nabal, but all that belonged to his household and all the men that worked for him. Only Abigail's rebuke kept him from murdering, murdering innocent men. So here we, in chapter 26, we have a similar scene. As Saul continues to pursue David to take his life, David and Abishai, David's nephew, they sneak in to Saul's camp, and again, they have an opportunity to take Saul's life. Abishai wanted to himself, but David wouldn't allow it. So I think the author of this book has a, purposely placed these accounts in close proximity. And is it so that we can see the similarities, or could it be that we see the differences? Well, maybe both, but I think that's going to be helpful as we walk through this text. Let's just walk through the story. Morgan read it for us, and I know some of you, um, I kind of look around when reading the Scripture, and some of you just kind of, kind of take, a, take a break. And, uh, and I get that, but I want to encourage you from now on to read the text. I think it'll be helpful for you if you open up that black pew Bible. You read the text and you read along with us because I'll be pointing things out as we move along. But verse 1, the Ziphites, they're pesky little rascals, aren't they? They're like a thorn in David's side. We saw them in chapter 23, verse 19. They were Saul's informants and they continue to be so here in chapter 26. And you may be thinking as you follow along with this story, why is Saul still seeking to take David's life when in chapter 24 he seems so remorseful over his ill treatment of David? Why is he still doing this? We'll address that in a moment. But sin is deceitful, isn't it? And the Ziphites are whispering in Saul's ear that they know where David is. So if you think about it, if Saul's a man of his word the hostilities between he and David would be over, he would have dismissed the Ziphites and would have moved on. But Saul is not a man of his word. Even after he says he's remorseful and he feels so badly for treating David so terribly. And yet, what is he doing? He's taking 3,000 men to go where David is supposedly to be. Saul is still out to kill David. And so he camps with his 3,000 men. They're surrounded. He... Saul is in the center of the camp, surrounded by 3,000 men, including Abner, his commander-in-chief. David had some spies himself. In verse 4 and 5, he finds, him, um, he finds out where Saul is. He goes to Saul's camp, and he asks for a volunteer, and Abishai volunteered to go. Now, who is Abishai? Well, it's David's nephew, and if you read in 2 Samuel 23, he's one of the mighty men. Chapter 23, verse 18 and 19. Let me just read that for you in 2 Samuel. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the 30, and he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander. But he did not attain to the three. So in other words, he's the most famous of the mighty men. So this is a, a pretty mighty warrior that David's taken into this camp. Now think about it. you got 3,000 men surrounding Saul, and they're, they're camped. And David decides, I'm going to just walk into that camp. But he takes with him Abishai, the mightiest of the mighty men, and he walks into that camp. You think about stepping on a twig or 
knocking something over. But as these guys are walking through the camp, they realize, man, these guys are sleeping really heavily. It's like they all have CPAPs on, Rodney. They can't hear anything, man. They're just in a deep, deep sleep. And, and the reason is because God has put them in a deep sleep, right? Yeah, they're almost comatose. And they find Saul and Ab Abishai wants to kill Saul. They see this spear and they, they know it's Saul. He's a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And they see his spear. And, and if you think about that, all it's going to take is one blow from Abishai and, and be done with all this trouble. But again, David saves Saul's life once again. Yet David told Abishai that the Lord would eventually take Saul's life. Saul's going to perish, but it's not going to be at his hand. You imagine Saul, he picks up that spear, and he had seen the spear before. Do you remember where he'd seen the spear before? Yeah, Saul had slung it at him a couple times, right? Trying to pin him to the wall. So he knew the spear well, but he takes his spear. And verse 13 through 16, David puts some distance between them, and then he cries out to them. They have a, what you call a rude awakening. As they wake up, and David, what does he do? He rebukes Abner for not watching the king. Abner's job was to protect the king, but he's sleeping on the job. And I think about, oh, poor Abner. God put him to sleep, and here David's piling on, right? And I, I think about that. Why is, he, why is he so hard on Abner? But if you think about it, Abner's, Abner took David's job. David had that job before he had to start running from Saul. Can you imagine the shock as they look up and they're all awakened from their slumber and they look up and there is David and he's holding the spear. And look, look what I got. And they look around for the spear and it's gone. And the water jug's gone as well. It's there in David's hand. And, and David tells Abner, you should, you should die for this. That offense is it should be punishable by death. He and 3,000 valiant soldiers slept while the enemy walked in, took the king's spear and water jug, and walked out. And David wants to know, as he's speaking to Abner, who's been disloyal? I mean, David's been faithful. He... he Saved Saul's life by killing Goliath. And in the cave in Engedi, he saved his life from the mighty men, just cutting off a piece of his robe. And then now again, he walks into the camp. Abishai, who's a mighty warrior, he wants to take Saul's life. He saved Saul's life again. But David's life is the life that's being pursued while Abner is negligent. Come on. David says, come on, Abner, come on, Saul, what are you doing? Who's being disloyal? Look what I've done for you. Verse 17 through 20, David responds to Saul. He speaks to Abner, Saul, groggy from his sleep. He hears the familiar voice of David. And David asks Saul what he has done to deserve the treatment Saul's given him. And Saul obviously thinks that David is trying to take his position. He's deserving of death. He's guilty of some crime. 
And David says there's really only two sources in verse 17 through 20. Really two sources from which Saul could arrive at such a conclusion. Number one, the Lord has found him guilty. He says in verse 19, well, if that's the case, let me know what my offense has been and I'll go make sacrifices that can atone for my sin. We can make this thing right. Or it's other men who falsely accused him and forced him from the land and in essence forcing him from Israel, which is saying, in essence, go serve other gods. Now, what's so important about that, if you, if you think about that, Deuteronomy 13 tells us if you worship other gods, if you're an idolater, you're to be stoned. And by running him out of Israel, what, that's essentially what they're saying. Go worship other gods. So David is innocent. How do we know that David is innocent? Because of Saul's response. Look at verse 21. I have sinned, return my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Well, of course David's not going to believe Saul, right? Saul's a liar. But he does say, I have sinned. Look at that, that response. He appears remorseful, right? But we know his word is no good. He said that in the cave incident. And so verse 23, David concludes the conversation by acknowledging that God will reward the righteous and the faithful. Let's read that. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So the... The Lord rewards the righteous and the faithful. And that's what David has been. Now the time's going to come when David's righteousness and faithfulness would fail. But for the moment, he's been faithful. He learned that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and faithfulness. and This means that God's king must be righteous and faithful. And those who serve him must pursue righteousness and faithfulness. Now look at verse 25. These are the last words that Saul says to David. This is the last time they see each other before Saul's death. Then Saul says to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. A couple things I just want to point out in the text and help us understand the text and then apply it to our lives. Number one is circumstances are not a reliable guide, in, reliable guide in determining God's will. If we want to know God's will, we don't look at our circumstances. We've seen this before. This is a review from before, but I want to reiterate that. I mean, it would have been easy to argue that David had been in the wrong in the, in, when he was in Engedi. See, David, you should have killed him before. You had a chance and you didn't. Now, God's given you a second chance. Abishai may have said that even. And Abishai would have been excited to have this second chance at Saul's life. He would have saw it as, this is the Lord's will. I mean, the Lord, here he is for the taking. He's asleep. We have his spear. We can kill him with his own spear. We can pin him to the ground and with one blow. The Lord is handing Saul over to you. But that wasn't the Lord's will. I mean, David's going to be king. But how is he to become king? Was he to take it by force by killing Saul with his own hands or the hands of his fighting men? I mean, it kind of reminds me of Jesus in the wilderness. You remember he was baptized and he went into the, the desert where he was tempted 
the kingdom was held out to him and if he would just yield to the enemy, it was there for the taking, but Jesus wouldn't take it. Not that way, right? Likewise, David would not take the kingdom, not Abishai's way. So again, our desires, our circumstances are not good indicator of God's will. Sometimes what appears to be a blessing needs to be confirmed, right, through the teaching of this whole counsel of God. For instance, I'll give you an example. You're buying something and you pay cash. Not very many people do that these days. But you're paying with cash and they give you change. And so you kind of count the change. Maybe it's a large purchase and you gave them a $100 bill and you want to make sure you, you get your change back. And you, you look at the change and they didn't give you enough change back. What would you do? Yeah, would you just walk away? No, you're going to say, hey, sorry, you only gave me $45. You should have given me $65. Yeah, you just wouldn't put that in your pocket and walk away. But what if, as you're flipping through there, you see that they gave you 20 extra dollars? You should do the same thing, right? The change isn't right. You're shorted me. You need to give me the correct amount. But you also shouldn't say, oh, I got 20 extra bucks. The cashier gave me 20 extra bucks. I'll just, the Lord's grace is poured out on me in abundance and put it in your pocket and walk away. A lot of people think that way. But your, circumstance, your circumstances don't dictate God's will. Our desires don't dictate God's will. The heart, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it, right? Yeah. So, again, just review. Circumstances are not a reliable guide in determining God's will because you would have thought, yeah, this is God's handing them over to us again. Abishai says, come on, David. Can't you see? This got to be God's will. We need to take his life. We made a mistake before. Let's not make the same mistake again. I'm tired of running for my life. Let's end this right now. The second thing, that we learn in this text, I think it's trust God to do what he says he'll do. I mean, David's anointed, he's going to be king. Look at verse 10 and 11. David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike, speaking of Saul, he's standing there over, over Saul, right, and he's got CPAP on, can't hear anything, right, everybody's just asleep. And he's, he's speaking over Saul's body. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. They'll strike Saul, or his day will come to die, or he will go down to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. He's trusting God to do what he says you'll do. And you remember what Abigail in chapter 25, she said the same thing. You're going to be king. And you don't, want, you don't want Nabal's blood on your hands. You need to spare him, because you're going to be a, a king, and God's going to bless you. So he's learning. Right? And what happened to Nabal? Ten days later, he was dead, right? So David spares Saul's life in the cave in Gedi. Saul there points out, you're going to be king. Abigail tells him he's going to be king. Nabal's life's taken. And then finally again, in Saul's own camp, David spares his life. And Saul even tells them, you're going to be king and you're going to be successful. It seems there's a progression in David's thought in these three episodes. And by the end, 
He's clearly learning something. He doesn't have to sin to take vengeance into his own hand to ensure that God's purposes for his life come about. Rather, he can walk in obedience and watch God bring about his plans. I think about that deep sleep that God put those men in. I, I think about Acts chapter 12, verse 6 to 11, and I, I'm not even sure we'll have time to read all of this. Um, but if you remember, Peter is in prison. He's been in prison by Herod. And James had just died. And it's Peter's turn next. He's there spending the night in prison. Let's read it real quickly. He's supposed to die the next day, but that's not the Lord's will. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that, he was, that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left them. Yeah, kind of same, same kind of deal, right? I can't believe this is happening. Why are these people, why don't they hear me? Why don't they see me? Same thing happened with David and Abishai. But what does David do? He trusts God to do what he's going to do. I'm not going to touch Saul. God's going to do what he says he'll do. I'm going to be king and God's going to bring it about. We don't have to worry about the, the means, right? We just focus on the end. This is what God says he'll do and he'll do it. I'm not sure how he's going to bring all out about, Blake, but it's going to happen. It's going to be good. And he's going to do what he says he'll do. The third thing that we learn from this text is that genuine repentance leads to a changed life. Now, we don't see that in Saul. Actually, we see he's a bad example. In chapter 24, Saul appears to be remorseful. Let's look at that real quick. Turn back to 24. Chapter 24, verse 6. Um, 16 and 17. David shows him the piece of his robe. and says, I could have taken your life, but I didn't. And Saul, in chapter 24, says, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and did what? Wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you for evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hand. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? It's like, you know, in the New Testament teaching where you, you, you heat burning coals on someone's head when someone mistreats you and you're just good to them. Oh, just heat burning coals on their head, right? That's what's happening with Saul. He's like, who lets their enemy go free? You've been so good to me and I've been so terrible to you. And I, behold, I know that you'll surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall, not, shall be established in your hands. Yeah, it sounds like he's just remorseful, isn't it? He seems so sad and broken. But yet, here he is again, seeking David's life. Why is that? Because the sorrow he, he had was worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. 
We see Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul had written a scathing letter to the Corinthian believers, rebuking them forthrightly. And they hurt their heart. They were sad. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, what happened? They were so sorry. They were, uh, their heart was broken. And Saul says, I mean, Paul says, that's good. There's a, a type of sorrow that's worldly. And that's the type of sorrow that you're sad because you got caught. You're sad because of the consequences. You're sad because it's going to make you look bad. It's worldly sorrow. Saul had worldly sorrow. He was shamed in front of all his men. He was sad because of that. He's sad because he knew he treated David poorly. He's sad because he realizes he's a sorry person. He's just a terrible human being. And that makes him sad. But it's worldly sadness, right? But he didn't repent. There's no fruit of repentance in his life. Several New Testament texts. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. John the Baptist, he just, he just called out the Pharisees. He called them, Bryce, he called them a bunch of snakes. And then he says... In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, you say you love God and you've repented, but you haven't repented. You're a bunch of snakes. You need to repent and you need to show that by the way you live your life. Acts 26, 19 and 20, Paul before Agrippa. He says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. He's just telling Agrippa what he's been doing. I've been going sharing the gospel, starting these churches. He says, they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance arises from seeing God for who He really is. Seeing our sin as a personal affront to this holy God. And there's a grief. And that grief results in a, a changed life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not us picking up our own, ourselves by our own bootstraps, but it's the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit, changing us. Genuine repentance hadn't happened in Saul's life. So, application for us today, what do we do with this text? Well, I think, let's deal with the first issue is repentance. Have you repented? Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Has there been godly sorrow in your life? Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin? And has there been a change in your life brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit? I mean, Saul, he blesses the man whom he is hunting to slay. And he knows that all his efforts to destroy David are doomed to failure. He knows that David will surely prevail and be king of Israel. And yet, Saul can't give up fighting against the inevitable. He's not fighting against fate. He's not fighting against David. He's fighting against God. He knows this is God's will, and yet he fights against God. 
How many of us are doing the same thing? We know this is the Lord's will for my life, but yet we fight against the Lord. So have you repented? Has there ever been a point in your life where you see your sin for what it is and you see God for who He is and you recognize and realize your sin is not just something that's terrible, something you've done that's immoral, but it's a, an offense against the God who created you? And have, has there been such godly sorrow that you've repented? Turn from your sin and you're following Christ, you're pursuing God's righteousness, you're doing what God wants you to do instead of what you want you to do. And has there been this change brought about by the Lord? And maybe the best way of answering that question is to ask people around you. And this is homework for you. For those of you who have family members that you live with. Maybe your children. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your husband, a wife. Maybe it's your mother. Whoever. That would be a good question to ask. And maybe Wednesday I'll ask you if you... You ask that question or not. Yeah, ask people in your home. I mean, you say, well, yeah, I've been a Christian for 30, 40 years. No, I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30, 40, 50 years or you just repented you know, last week. Ask those in your household. I'm going to do that. I'm going to ask Jenny. And I'm going to get her to name things. I'll say, hey, do you see in my life fruit in keeping with repentance? Do you see that? And maybe they would say, yeah, I see that in your life and give specific examples. Maybe they'll say, well, I used to, but I hadn't seen it in a long time. Or maybe they'll say, ah, ah, maybe. And the, the answer doesn't mean that you're not, you haven't repented, but it gets you thinking about it, right? Has there been a change in your life that people can see? There was no repentance in Saul's life, but yet Jesus, if you could sum up Jesus' preaching and teaching, at least you could say, repent and believe the good news. That's what God commands all of us to do, is repent and trust Christ's work on the cross as our own. So have you done that? That's application number one. You say, well, okay, if I haven't done that, how do I do that? You just cry to the Lord, say, I've Sin against you, God. I've offended you, and I am guilty, and I want to be set free. I want to be forgiven, and I want to know you. So forgive me and help me obey you. I want to follow you all my days, and I want to walk with you, and I want to know you, and I want to get to know you better and better and better with every passing day. Something like that. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about that. Love to talk to you about that. Yeah, have you repented? Genuine repentance leads to a changed life. And for us as a church, are we trusting God to do what He says He'll do? Are we trusting Him to do what He says He'll do? Think about the promises that He gives us. Are we trusting Him in that? Or are we living life right now and maybe a a lot of anxious thoughts, a lot of anxiety, a lot of insecurity. Are you trusting the Lord to do what He says He'll do? And also, our circumstances are we letting circumstances dictate to us what God's will is? Or are we looking into His Word 
to determine God's will. Let's pray and we'll be done. If you have any questions about anything that I can help you with, I'd love to talk to you about that. Some of you are, have repented this summer. Like Dave was talking about children and students in his church that they've been ministering to have repented. Some of you have repented and you need to be baptized. You need to obey the Lord in baptism. I'd love to talk to you about that. Some of you are wondering where you need to be in church and maybe you're thinking, well, Beaver might be the place where I need to put down roots and lock arms with people and, and, and let the church know I want to be a part of this fellowship. I'd love to talk to you about that as well. So whatever you need to talk to me about, I'm here for you. If, when we pray, I would encourage you to, if your children are in children's church, to go get them before you talk. And make sure parents tell the, the workers, thank you so much for keeping kids. Okay, Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. Lord, you give us your word that we can know your will. We read these stories of how you worked in people's lives, and we recognize that you're working in our lives as well. And Lord, we have good examples in the Scripture, David trusting you. He was going to be king, and he could trust you with that, and he didn't have to worry about the means and take matters in his own hands, but he trusted you to put him in the place to be king. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to trust you with the promises you've given us, Lord. I pray that you would help us seek out your will. Help us to study your word this week. Help it be a regular part of our lives. So we don't let circumstances or our desires deceive us into doing something that you don't approve of. And Father, for those here who have yet to repent, I pray that you would begin, just continue to work and Lord, use even the, the gospel that's been spoken today in their lives, that they would have godly sorrow over their sin or that you would help them, Lord, to turn from their sin and to trust Christ's work on the cross as their own. Father, I pray that you would save sinners even this week. And for those here who have trusted you and repented, they need to be baptized. I pray that you would help them be obedient in that. Father, may you bless us as we go. And Lord, we, we're going to have a, a funeral this week. Uh, Miss Mary Jane's brother-in-law, I mean son-in-law, I just pray that you would bless that time, that we, our church would love that family. Lord, that the gospel be shared. And Lord, I pray for that family that you would bless them. And Lord, there's many here that are struggling with life, with relationships, with husband and wife. And rebellious children. I just pray that you would bless them. And some are struggling right now with loneliness. And Lord, I just pray you would help us to love people like we should. That we'd be the church you called us to be. Give us grace as we leave and help us apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information and we'll see you next time.